Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet Gail Martin, a prolific author of epic fantasy, urban fantasy, and steampunk genres, among others. We visit four of her strange worlds. Gail has always loved ghost stories, vampires, werewolves, haunted houses, and things that go bump in the night. Her books have necromancers, powerful witches, and spirit mediums. Plenty of vengeful ghosts, creepy castles, curses, magic, and monsters. That's what she loves to read and what she really enjoys writing. We get a glimpse into four books in four different series. Wasteland Marshals, book one. The Joe Max Shadow Council Files, Cauldron, book one. Assassin's Honor, Assassins of Landria, book one. And Spells, Salt and Steel, Night Moves, book five. Gail starts the show with a reading from Wasteland Marshals, a story where the last two U.S. Marshals meet out rough justice in a near-future post-apocalyptic world. Think Boondock Saints meets The Walking Dead. He came around the corner, his crossbow drawn. Lucas was down, fighting for his life against a huge black dog. Only it wasn't a normal dog, Shane knew, as he tried to get a clear shot, where he could hit the attacker and not Lucas. A grim only looked like a large, ugly dog, the size of a sow with black matted fur, bat-like ears, and red eyes. It was really a revenant, a supernatural creature, so nothing but iron or silver would do the job. Shane squeezed the trigger, sending a silver-coated arrow into the monster's front shoulder, hoping like hell Lucas didn't manage to move into the shot. The creature reared back and howled in pain, turning its glowing red eyes on Shane. Blood covered its sharp teeth and powerful wide jaw, and Shane feared he was already too late. The Grimm's hesitation gave Shane the time he needed to reload, and this time the crossbow bolt caught the Grimm between the eyes. The creature toppled over, covering Lucas in gore. Lucas, Shane rushed forward, alert in case the Grimm had not hunted alone. Usually, they were solitary creatures, but nothing worked the way it used to, and Shane had learned the hard way not to take chances. Lucas groaned, trapped beneath the body of the dead beast. Shane slung his crossbow over his shoulder on its strap and hefted the Grimm off his partner. He couldn't tell how much of the blood was the Grimm's and how much was Lucas's. Gut shoulder, Lucas moaned. Shane knelt beside him, triaging the wound. Lucas's shirt and jacket were ripped and bloody where the Grimm had sunk its teeth into the meat of his upper arm, and a swipe of the creature's claws had opened a set of gashes across his chest. That's bad, Shane thought. He fought down panic and thought quickly, then shimmied out of his own coat long enough to strip off his flannel shirt and rip it to pieces. Shane wadded up one section to staunch the flow of blood from the bite, then tied the wad in place with what had been a sleeve. He did the same for the chest wound. How bad, Lucas managed. More than I can stitch up, Shane said. We need to get you help. Not far to Green Farm. Lucas hated admitting pain, so the fact that he was panting gave Shane an idea of just how bad it was. Yeah, far enough, Shane muttered. Gonna have to get you to the farm. I'll get the bags, then we need to go. He pulled Lucas to his feet as gently as he could and pretended he didn't see the tightness in his partner's face or hear the moan he bit back. Shane had a thinner, narrower build, while Lucas had always been more muscular. That made hauling his injured buddy all the harder, since Shane swore Lucas weighed a ton, although, in reality, they were both lean from scant rations. Lucas stumbled beside him, and Shane kept his gaze fixed on the motel. The trek seemed to take forever. 
I'll be back, Shane said, as he eased Lucas into a plastic chair in the lobby. He grabbed their bedrolls and saddlebags, then went to the garage to fetch the horses, all the while expecting another Grim to show up and finish the hunt. Shane got the horses ready and then led them back, hoping Lucas remained conscious. While he returned to the, when he returned to the lobby, his friend was pale and shaky, but still awake. Okay, you've got to stay with me, Shane cautioned. Probably going to hurt like hell. I'll drag this chair out beside Shadow and then help you climb from the chair to the saddle. Fuck off, Lucas said, but the weakness in his voice took the heat from his comment. I can get on my horse. Falling would be bad, and you're in no condition to make decisions. Shane ignored Lucas's bravado, feeling vindicated when Lucas could barely keep his legs under him for the short distance between the lobby and the horses. Shane dragged the plastic chair along with them, then steadied Lucas and half-lifted him as he stepped up and swung his leg over the saddle. Do I need to tie you on? It wouldn't be the first time they'd ridden with one of them hurt. No, just fuck it hurts. Don't take the long way. Shane hoped he had kept his worry out of his expression, but Lucas knew him too well to be fooled if he hadn't already figured out the danger for himself. He fastened Shadow's reins to his, old sa his own saddle, so Lucas only had to worry about keeping himself in the seat. Not for the first time, he missed the convenience of GPS and the efficiency of ambulances and emergency rooms. Hell, even a hospital would be an improvement, he thought. But they were out in the country on the outskirts of Mercer, Pennsylvania, and the small rural hospitals had shut down long ago as the power failed and supplies ran out. He came to the crossroad and debated which way to go. Both led to Green Farm. But Shane couldn't afford to find out that a damaged bridge or other obstacle blocked their path. Lucas still bled steadily from his injuries, and even the best care Shane might find in time would fall short of a trauma center. It wasn't until he'd already made the decision, trusting his gut, and started down the road that Shane realized he'd followed the path where the faint song in his mind sang the loudest. Hey, listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you a, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings, and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Gail Martin discovered her passion for science fiction, fantasy, and ghost stories in elementary school. The first story she wrote at age five was about a vampire. Her favorite TV show as a preschooler was Dark Shadows. And at age 14, she decided to become a writer. She enjoys attending science fiction, fantasy conventions, renaissance fairs, and living history sites. She's married and has three children, a Maltese and a golden retriever. Gail writes epic fantasy, urban fantasy, and steampunk for Solaris Books, Orbit Books, uh, SOL Publishing, Darkwind Press, and Falstaff Books. Recent books include Witch of the Woods, uh, Cell Swords Oath, Inheritance, Monster Mash, and Black Sun. With Larry N. Martin, she is the co-author of the Spell, Salt, Steel, Wasteland Marshals, Joe Mack, and Jack Desmond series. As Morgan Bryce, she writes urban fantasy, male-male paranormal romance, including The Witch Bane, Badlands, Treasure Trail, Kings of the Mountain, and the upcoming Fox Hollow series. Nearly all the books are either already available on audiobook or are coming soon. Gail, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I'll tell you, that is a mouthful. I'm going through all these uh, <laughs> <laughs> different genres here and everything that you write and do. And uh, by the way, congratulations on your many, many, many books. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And, you know, it's really a lot of fun writing across a number of genres. It kind of keeps everything fresh and it means that whenever I switch which series I'm working on, I, I kind of get a breath of fresh air and it really does keep me on my toes and keep everything from getting in a rut. 
Yeah. So what is the book count now anyway? How many are you up to? I think we're somewhere around 40 for novels, standalone, you know, pieces. Um, and then probably another 45 um, anthologies, U.S. and U.K. I have I like doing anthologies. I think I'm in four or five this year. And uh, that, again, pushes me out of my comfort zone and keeps me on my toes. So how does that work? Somebody comes up with a theme or an idea for an anthology, and then you submit to that and participate? Um, yeah. Usually this happens in the bar at a convention when a bunch of authors and maybe a publisher or two are sitting around. Somebody makes a comment, and somebody else says, that sounds like an anthology. And then somebody says, I'd publish that. And then all of us around the table are already in the anthology before we pay our tab. So that's kind of the way it works, hanging out with authors. Um yeah. But yeah, the the themed anthologies are fun because you you have to write to the prompt and that pushes you out of your comfort zone. And I've really grown a lot as an author doing those things. Well, just what little I know about you, Gail, your comfort zone is kind of expansive. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I try. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to be uh, talking today, listeners, about a lot of different uh, genres that Gail uh, writes in. Uh, we're going to be talking about U.S. Marshals in a post-apocalyptic world, a man who summons the ancient god of blacksmiths to give him powers to do justice, a mechanic who's a monster hunter, and a team of assassins who go rove to save the kingdom. I mean, wow, okay. But first, Gail, let's talk a little bit about you. I want to, I want to dive into the mind of Gail Martin. <laughs> it's a scary you, place. Yeah. How, how do you, I mean... I don't know how to ask this exactly. How, how do you come up with all these ideas and what makes you love these stories as much as you do? Well, the ideas aren't the hard part. It's, it's having enough hours in the day to write them all because I keep a running file of ideas for new series and it has a number of pages and I get to them as I can. Um, the ideas are everywhere. You know, you see something and you think, well, what if that had gone a different way? Or you find a cool element of history and go, ooh, I can work with that. Uh, or when we weren't on lockdown, you visit a historic site or you go someplace and go, oh, I just got to write about this. And all of those things have brought me to writing different series. Um, then when you have, sometimes you get the character first and you have to figure out what world they belong in. Sometimes you get the plot first and you have to figure out the characters and what kind of world that plot would happen in. And sometimes you get the location and you go, I got to come up with something that is organic to this location for both a plot and characters. And so again, it, it keeps you on your toes. Never, never lets you get complacent. So, you know, we got so many different, uh, you know, monsters and vampires and werewolves and apocalyptic things that are going on here. And I'm wondering, um, are these just, uh, different types of characters dealing with some of the same kinds of issues we deal with in normal life. And, uh, you know, how do you build these stories? Um, do you build them character first or do you build them plot first? Uh, how do you go at it as a genre fiction writer? Um, it really all depends on the series. So for my deadly curiosity series, uh, I had gone to a business meeting in Charleston, South Carolina. I'd never been there before. And in walking around, taking some tours, looking at the city, I said, oh, I've, this is perfect for an urban fantasy series. Surely there are a bunch of them already set here. And I looked on Amazon at the time. This is a number of years ago. And there weren't. And I said, well, then I'm planting my flag and this is my city. I'm putting a series here because it's just too good between the history and the hauntedness and, and all of its kind of sorted but... Uh, grand background it was just too good to pass up and now there are you know obviously some other cities uh some other series set there but i then had to come up with well what character would belong in charleston what kind of a, a series would be organic to this city and so what i came up with was a character who is a psychometric she can read the history and magic of objects by touching them and she is the latest in a long line of her family to own a, an antique store, Trifles and Folly, which is really a cover for an alliance of mortals and immortals who keep the world safe from supernatural threats. So if you've ever been to Charleston, there are antique shops on every corner. There's old stuff everywhere. 
and you figure, and, and everything's haunted. So what better goes together than somebody who can read the history of those pieces and together with her team of allies and friends, keep the world from all kinds of supernatural things that go bump in the night. Yeah, it sounds a bit like Diagon Alley and on Harry Potter. There's just something hidden in plain sight, <laughs> and you kind and of if, build a world behind that. And, speaking, and if you've been to Charleston, yeah. that's that's very much the way it feels. I mean, Charleston, Charleston is just an urban fantasy novel begging to be written. It's just got that vibe. So in Wasteland Marshals, which you read from at the outset of the show, we're more in a rural landscape. You said it in uh, Pennsylvania, and I think mm-hmm. Pennsylvania comes back in some of the other Uh, We're going to talk about it. Why is Pennsylvania a good setting for sort of a post-apocalyptic world? Well, we we do have several series set in Pennsylvania because that's where Larry and I are originally from. And we lived in Pittsburgh for 10 years before we moved south. We've been in the south now for uh, over 22 years. But uh, so I love both both sections. But uh, Pennsylvania is our stamping ground. And so the area that um, the Spell, Salt and Steel books are set in that much of the Wasteland Marshall series is set in, that the Night Vigil series is set in, are all in that Pittsburgh to Erie corridor, which is where we're from. So it's been a lot of fun in those series to revisit the history and the urban legends and the ghost stories and some of the old scandals and the uh, all of the stuff that I use as ghosts and monsters and magic has some root in folklore and mythology and occult practice. I don't make a lot of that stuff up. I may take some authorial license to fit something to the plot, but the kernel of it is there and you can find it. You can Google it and find the root of the uh, the legends. And to me, that kind of helps me ground a story in its place so that it couldn't happen anywhere else. I want the location to be organic to the story. Um, it also makes it a lot more fun for me because when I sit down at the beginning of any book and certainly at the beginning of any series, the first thing I do is sit down and I look at where where are the most haunted places? What are the urban legends? Uh, where were the big catastrophes? Was there a mine catastrophe? Was there a huge fire? Was there a flood? Where were the, the big uh, disasters that would have led to some of these things? And it never steers me wrong. I can find the best stuff looking that way uh, with things that are part of the history of the place. And to me, that helps create the vibe that I want and keep the series a little different and also keep them very rooted in the real world. All right. Well, before we go to a next uh, series here, I want to talk a little bit more about Lucas Maddox and Shane Collins are the last two U.S. Marshals in this corner of the U.S. Uh, after a series of catastrophic events. Uh, they've been touched off by a terrorist nuclear strike that destroys world governments, takes down the power grid, and throws everything into chaos. I liked the start here because I'm a, I like westerns. I like the fact that these guys are on, on horses, you know, and uh, that's a, a great way to move around. But they're fighting with a a grim in this first scene. Tell us what a grim is, um, and what other kind of creatures are they going to come in contact with in this book? Well, a grim goes by a lot of different names. It can be called a black dog or a black shuck. Uh, it is a grim or a hellhound. There are it, it figures in a lot of mythology, particularly uh, Celtic and Anglo-Saxon mythology. It's sometimes an omen of death. Um, and of course, we've seen hellhounds used in a number of different TV shows and movies. So not your average Fido. But it is a predatory animal that is way bigger than a wolf, and you really don't want it coming after you. And of course, in Wasteland Marshals, once the power grid mostly goes down, once people flee, um, those who survive, into small enclaves, a lot of the things that were hiding in the dark start to come back out. They never left. They just slipped into the shadows when we were the apex predators. And now that we're not anymore, they've come back to take their rightful place. So you run in, in in this series, you run into everything from feral artificial intelligence robots to 
um, genetically modified werewolves that escaped from an army base after after the bombs go off to witches and twisted genius loci, the um, daemon or elemental spirit of a place. The genius loci actually play a really big role in the Wasteland Marshalls series, both good elementals and twisted ones. And that really, again, they've come back to the forefront. But if you think of ever having been to a place, maybe it was a national park, and you just felt overwhelmed and transported, almost an out-of-body experience by the beauty of the place, there was just something about the place that spoke to you. Legend and lore has always held that to be the spirit of the place. Likewise, if you've ever found yourself on a dark road in the middle of the night in some place where, you know, there's no reason to feel creeped out, there's no reason to be afraid, and yet your hackles have risen and everything in your hindbrain is saying, get the hell out of Dodge, there have always been places that people have said were bad and and therefore a, a bad genius loci. So that plays a lot into the Wasteland Marshall books because a lot of these primal forces are coming back to the fore now that our grip on everything has been broken. Yeah, so before we shift to the Joe Max Shadow Council file series, uh, there's a couple of peculiarities uh, about uh, these two characters, Shane and Lucas, uh, that uh, make them what you've described as barely still human, or maybe that's what Lucas says, and hardly sane. Tell us why. Well, there's a little bit of a spoiler here because this okay. unfolds over the course of the, the series. So spoiler alert. Um, okay. In one of the first books, Lucas nearly dies. And the way he remains alive is that he allows a helpful genius loci to co-inhabit his body. And its power keeps him alive and kind of rides shotgun in his head. So he is alive. He's still him. He's not possessed in a bad way, but he does have this other spirit living inside him. In one of the other books, Shane uh, gets bitten by a werewolf and turns. And Lucas convinces him that they can work this out. And because Shane has always had a native ability to hear the song of the genius loci, and that's what you hear at the end of that passage that I read, that he, he went the direction that the song in his head sang the loudest. He's always been able to sense these elemental spirits, although he didn't know what he was sensing. It was just gut instinct. And Lucas convinces Shane that between the daemon that co-inhabits Lucas's body and Shane's native ability to tap into these elemental spirits. Shane isn't going to hurt anybody. He'll learn to control his abilities, his shift as a, as a werewolf, and they'll be able to fight together just a little differently than they've done it before. So in some ways, this actually prepares them to do their job a lot better because now they're virtually immortal. Another uh, bit of information that helps us tap into that uh, interesting mind of Gail Martin. <laughs> so, so let's do this. Let's go to the Joe Max Shadow Council Files. Uh, we, we've got a different setting here. Uh, tell us where this uh, series is set. So this series is, is uh, set in 1928, Prohibition Cleveland. And so it's Roaring Twenties for all the good and the bad and all kinds of things going on there. So... We're going to start in 1928 Cleveland. Ben Lavecchia ran the best blind tiger in Cleveland. The Hathaway Theater hosted the top vaudeville show in the city with a mix of traveling performers and an impressive cast of local talent that many people said put New York and Chicago to shame. I'm pretty sure that the people who said they had never, who said that had never actually been to New York or Chicago, but it was a nice fiction that kept Ben happy. Considering the guy was both a powerful strega and the youngest son of Vincent Lavecchia, Cleveland's biggest crime boss, telling Ben what he wanted to hear was smart. I'm smart, but I'm also an asshole. Ben puts up with me anyhow. You got any Caribbean tigers in there? I asked when I bellied up to the huge mahogany bar. This being prohibition and all, there were no bottles of distilled spirits on the back bar, although there were several oddly shaped containers of medicinal potions and elixirs famed for their curative powers. 
Never sure what kind of tigers we have around, Ben said with a shrug. He took my money, wrapped on a hidden drawer, uh, wrapped on a wooden panel and dropped the coins into a hidden drawer. A moment later, the drawer opened again, holding a glass filled with an amber liquid that looked a lot like rum. Might be your lucky day, Joe, Ben said, handing me the glass. Caribbean tigers are hard to come by. I knocked back the shot and held out a couple more coins. I can't say I got a good look at that tiger, I said with a grin. I'd like to try again. I'll look real hard this time. Ben rolled his eyes, repeated the trick with the hidden drawer, and handed off my rum. Leave some for the other patrons tonight, will ya? He added, but I knew he wasn't pissed because he hadn't racked his shotgun. I'm your best customer, Ben. It was true. And thanks to my deal with an ancient Slavic god, I also couldn't get more than mildly buzzed, no matter how much I drank. I try to keep everyone happy, Ben replied, glancing around the smoky room. His gaze never missed anything, a habit that went with living on a knife edge. Rumor had it that once upon a time, Ben and his big brother Tony never missed a party. Then Tony went to war and didn't come back, and Ben's party days were over. Ben's blind tiger speakeasy operated out of a private room in the basement of the theater, which conveniently had several exits hidden and not. It was a sanctuary that catered to a strange mix of people, myself included. Theater folks came down after their performances, often still in costume, and mixed with the bankers, socialites, well-off wastrel sons, card sharps, and mob gentry. Hank, the piano player, was as blind as the fictional tiger, with a perfect memory and a keen ear for voices. There wasn't anything worth knowing in this town that Hank hadn't overheard. You ever get anyone who actually thinks you've got a real tiger? I asked, sipping my second drum. Now and again, Ben replied. Vito, one of my boys, brought one of the new guys in last week. Big fellow, but young and green as grass. He had a thought someone kicked his puppy when he found out there weren't no tigers. I don't know who came up with the idea of charging patrons for a special exhibit of seeing an exotic blind tiger, then giving them free alcohol with their ticket in order to get around the law, but the name stuck. Then again, no cop with two brains to rub together would try to close down Benny Lavecchia's place. That is, if he didn't want to find himself fired and dead, not necessarily in that order. Not that Ben himself would have anything to do with it. Ben had gone as straight as his circumstances would allow. Didn't stop his overprotective papa and big brothers from making sure no harm came to their youngest. Not to mention that Ben was a powerful strega. Even Capone knew not to mess with a witch. <laughs> okay. So uh, when I read the first part of this book, uh, we got this fight scene that's going on. And uh, Joe, whose character you've been describing here, uh, he's he's dying on a riverbank uh, after what you call the homestead riots. And he calls on this ancient Slavic god of blacksmiths uh, and ends up, as you said, cutting a deal. And he, he gets immortality and special abilities. Uh, in exchange for his soul, he gets uh, some powers, I suppose. And he is doing what? He's hunting monsters. Is that right? He hunts monsters. He hunts um, monsters who work with people to do monstrous things to other people. He died in the Homestead Riots, which is a historical event, uh, big in labor relations. That was when the Pinkertons really crushed uh, the unions at the, the Homestead plant outside of Pittsburgh. That was brutal. And very much like I described it in his death scene. And he had come over from Hungary. He just wanted a better life. His wife and son died shortly after he got here. Then he ends up beaten to death uh, by the hired guards. And he, he wants to be the champion of the people who have no power and no voice. And he, call, he, doesn't, he gave up on the Christian gods when his wife and son died because they hadn't listened to him. They hadn't, they hadn't heard his prayer. But his grandmother back in the old country had always still worshipped the old gods. Um, she kept their images behind the pictures of the Christian saints. And to Joe's sense, these gods got their hands dirty. They didn't just walk around in white robes, singing songs and playing harps. He could identify more with them because he came from the steel mill and Krukus was a blacksmith and they had that in common. So uh, it plays with a lot of Slavic mythology and lore. Uh, plays with a lot of Pittsburgh history. And again, this takes place in largely a tri-state area around the Pittsburgh-Cleveland uh, axis, which, going back, is where we're from. Plenty of history there and a lot to work with. So it's been a lot of fun and, you know, the Roaring Twenties. Hey, what can I say? 
Yeah, no, it sounds like a great time period. Um, so how many books are there in this series? Uh, I'll be working on, we'll be working on the third one uh, right after we put this new Spell, Salt, and Steel book that we're finishing up together. And so there will be at least four. And so those will come out, uh, the last two will come out later this year. Now, do you work in these series to have an arc in each book and then an overall arc for the series when you when you kind of brainstorm what you're going to do with these uh, books? Yes. Yeah. Each book uh, has its own arc. So to that extent, they stand alone. They also build on each other toward a larger arc, but it isn't an incomplete story from book to book. You just know that there are some loose ends that haven't been tied up and maybe there's a bigger bat out there you haven't seen yet. Okay. Well, uh, there's some loose ends we hadn't tied up today, listeners. We're going to do that just in just a moment after the break. When we come back, uh, we're going to do uh, two more series, uh, The Assassins of Landria and also Spells, Salt, and Steel. We're going to do the Writing Life segment with Gail. So please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit. Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way, and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes, uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, I'm, I'm back with uh, Gail Martin, who's, uh, who's just writing, writing, writing every day, and she's got all these different uh, ideas for books. And We've gone through two today. We've uh, we've talked about uh, Wasteland Marshals. We've talked about the Joe Mack Shadda Council File series is set in the 1920s. Uh, now we're moving to a different sort of world uh, in Assassins of Landria. Tell us about this world, Gail. Well, this is buddy flick epic fantasy. So it is epic fantasy without the epic length. I've had so many people come up to me at conventions and say, oh, yeah, I really used to love reading epic fantasy, but I don't have the time. And three of my epic fantasy series are all big, fat fantasy. The books are all over 600 pages. And that does take a time commitment. And I thought, well, you know, it's really 
sad that people who love that kind of vibe and don't have the time to get involved with a book that may take them a week or a couple of weeks to read have to walk away from it altogether. So what I came up with with the Assassins of Landria series are uh, series that are, you can see, a lot thinner. So it's not as many different points of view. It's not as many interwoven plot lines. But what you do have is a solid epic fantasy vibe and a lot of adventure and action so that somebody who likes that feel can still enjoy the book without making a major life commitment to it. They're also a little bit funnier, a little snarkier, a little lighter. There's definitely action, adventure, magic, all kinds of supernatural stuff. But the two main guys are childhood friends who have come up through the ranks and they break all the rules, most noticeably the stealthy part. They've never really gotten the stealthy part down pat, uh, but they still are the most successful assassins in the kingdom and they're piecing together what they believe is a conspiracy against the king that the king isn't entirely convinced is actually real. So when you write these epic fantasies, do you set these kingdoms in a time period or, and in a place or do people just kind of use their imagination about where these kingdoms might be located? Well, none of my kingdoms are real places on Earth. They're all imaginary. But I've tethered them to essentially a late 1400s, early 1500s, Western European level of technology, just so I had reference points that I could go back to for the... um, what kind of weaponry was available, what kind of castles were available so that I could keep a consistent feel. You know, as much as I love Renaissance festivals, the big joke is it's got the entire thousand years of the Middle Ages walking around because everybody just kind of does what they do. And I wanted to keep a coherency with some time period. So it's not our earth. uh, It's not our Middle Ages, but That was my undergraduate. I love medieval history. I try to keep it as realistic in the sense that I can um, to suit the story. Yeah, and these these guys are assassins, uh, and they are early in the book on a mission to to rescue someone. And I think we got a little scene here you're going to read that that demonstrates how they work together in those uh, environments. So anytime you're ready. Okay. Rowan Destweiler was a dead man by order of the king. He just didn't know it yet. Joel Breckenridge, king's assassin, bided his time and hoped his partner got into position to make the shot. If not, the evening would go badly very fast. The stolen cloak that he had taken off the arm smuggler itched, and Ridge tried not to scratch. He hoped that lice would be the worst of the vermin in the clothes he had stripped off the man he waylaid a few streets over. Ridge did his best to look at ease, accompanying two guards who carried a heavy chest of contraband swords, knives, and war axes Ridge had delivered on an equally stolen wagon. A third guard opened the doors to the dealmaker's opulent office. Destweiler sat behind a wide desk, resplendent in a wine-red brocade frock coat over a deep blue satin vest. He had a broad, plain face with an off-kilter nose, broken too often to ever set right, and a scar through one eyebrow. You're late, he snapped, barely favoring Ridge with a glance, which suited the assassin just fine. He kept the arms dealer's stolen hat slouched low to obscure his face. Had to get around the king's guards, Ridge lied. Couldn't have them nosing around. Once he and Rhett had nabbed the arms smuggler, it had taken a while to move the weapons into a second chest with a false bottom with a nasty surprise inside. Let's see the cargo, Destweiler said. It better be what I paid for. He gave a disquieting chuckle. The buyer is impatient. Then again, now that I've got my good luck charm, we shouldn't have any delays getting the items where they need to go. His gaze fell on the scrawny boy chained to one side of Destweiler's desk. The kidnapped nobleman's son, Ridge and Rhett, had been assigned to rescue. A small boy, perhaps eight years old, huddled against the desk, trying to make himself invisible. Manacles far too heavy for his spindly arms and legs clanked, practically pinning him in place by their weight. The jacket and knickers he wore were made of fine brocade, sullied and stained by his captivity. The boy's hair hung lank, and his cheeks were hollow, so he looked more like an urchin than an aristocrat's child. 
I promise you, it's everything and more, Ridge replied, opening the chest. At Dustweiler's, as Dustweiler's attention went to the box of weapons, Ridge scanned the room. Two guards stood behind him. An iron key hung from a leather strap around Dustweiler's neck, and Ridge bet it fit the locks on the boy's chains. Opening up his sight, Ridge felt no surprise that Dustweiler bore the touch of the Witch Lord, a psychic stain like festering rot. Destweiler had been a worthy target for a long time, escaping punishment for as long as he had, only because Burke, King Kristoff's left hand and the commander of the King's assassins, believed the man would eventually lead them to more important criminals. Then Destweiler got greedy, or stupid, and took the son of a noble hostage to further his schemes, and forbearance ended. Ridge restrained himself from glancing upward toward the second-floor windows. Destweiler moved out from behind the desk and into position. Breaking glass and the crack of gunfire were Ridge's signals to move, as Destweiler's skull exploded from the matchlock's shot, splattering the crate of weapons with bone and blood. The boy screamed in terror, a thin, shrill sound. Ridge spun around, grabbing two throwing knives from the top of the stash in the box and had them hilt deep in each guard's ribs before their swords cleared their scabbards. He dropped the heavy crossbar to lock the door to the office and dodged back to the box of weapons, reclaiming his own array of swords and knives before teasing out a long fuse from the bottom of the crate. Then he strode over to Destweiler's corpse and pulled the key and its strap around what was left of the man's head. Ridge removed the warrant from inside his vest and read out the charges as required by law. Rowan Destweiler, by order of King Christoph of Landria, you stand condemned of crimes against the kingdom and the throne, too numerous to note, but most grievously the kidnapping of Kelvin, son of Thad, Lord of Wendover. You are sentenced to death, summary execution, without notice or reprieve. Yeah, I like that little legal touch at the end. The person's already dead. <laughs> they're going well, you know. to read it out to, to, to their dead body. Uh, well, you got a technicalities, yeah, you know. Right. Uh, let's do this. Let's talk writing life just a little bit uh, before we do our last section. Sure. So um, I want to talk a little bit, Gail, about your path as a writer. Um, uh, you talked about writing, you know, early and wanting to be a writer early, but when did you start getting really serious about, uh, uh, you know, writing for a living and how did, how did you make that decision? Well, I wrote all the way through high school and college and grad school and early marriage and having kids and life kept getting in the way. Uh, I was working on the book that would eventually become The Summoner, which is my first published novel. And I would work on it. I'd get a spate of free time then it would go back in a drawer and on and on we went. And then, so I was working full time in corporate. I had three kids. My husband traveled 50% of the time back then. There wasn't a whole lot of spare time. And then I got laid off from a big company that I was working with. And I looked around and said, you know, I don't want to go back into corporate. I said I was going to do this. A lot of time has passed and it hasn't happened yet. I might, I might fail. I might not. But I'm going to give it all I, I have and try. So I'd started picking up a lot of consulting and freelance for my former colleagues. Pretty much created a marketing consulting firm that I ran for a number of years and that replaced the day job. But it also gave me a schedule that I could set so that I had one and then two writing days a week at that time. And I did all the other stuff on the other days. And that let me get the book finished. That let me get the queries out to agents at the time. This was early 2000, so uh, around 2005. So we didn't have the self-publishing in the same way that we have now. It was still very much traditional publishing, and agents were the gatekeepers. Got an agent. He got me a publisher. And the, the Chronicles of the Necromancer came out from Solaris Books. So we went that way for a number of years with uh, writing one book a year for a major publisher and a couple of series. And then the world changed in 2008 with the recession. A lot of the marketing work went away. I had kind of gotten tired of doing that side of things and wanted to go full-time into the novels, which had always been my long-term plan and where my heart was. And they were starting to really pay the rent. So I stepped up the pace and started to bring some, some short fiction out independently 
Then there were some changes and some switches at some of the big publishers. And my back stock is still with them. My backlist is, is still with them. But it just made more sense at a certain point for us to take everything independent because we had the skills to do it. We knew how to do it. And it's it works out much better for the bottom line because you're not sharing with you're not sharing a portion, the major portion, with another publisher. And it also gave us a lot of control. Uh, it gave us the ability to write what we wanted to write on the schedule that we wanted to write and not have people second-guessing us and going, oh, won't that confuse your readers if you write an urban fantasy series and an epic fantasy series? No, my readers are smart people. They can figure <laughs> it out. They know what they like and what they don't like, and some of them like both. So, you know, it'll all be okay. Oh, you shouldn't bring out so many books a year. Readers will get tired. No, my readers read 100 to 200 books a year. I can't possibly overwhelm them. No matter how fast I write, they can keep up with this. Again, they're smart people. They'll figure yeah, it so out. You, that's very interesting. Uh, and, and there are a lot of pros to being a self-published author for that reason. If you start to get a back uh, you know, catalog there, you can you know bring those back out. You can time. You can do free create funnels, all this kind of thing. But with that comes um, a time suck to some extent. So I'm just wondering, what does your week look like um, when you're you're trying to write all these books, but you're also trying to do all the other things you've got to do? Um, and what are those other things you have to do to make this a successful enterprise? Well, I'm very fortunate that uh, at the end of 2010, my husband also was with a major company that went through a big merger and he chose to leave. And we had talked for a long time about, well, maybe someday it would be really great if we could write together. And I won't say that that was the absolute perfect timing, but we looked at it and said, this is probably as good as it gets. Let's give it a shot. And so he's been in the business with me full time now for 10 years. And so we Pretty much at this point, everything behind the scenes is really co-written. The name on the front is a matter of branding. Um, so some things come out under my name. Some things come out under a joint name. Some things uh, like the romance come out under the Morgan Bryce name. But behind the scenes, we're both working on it. Um, he's a terrific first editor. He is terrific at brainstorming, character generation. When uh, I get kind of stuck on something, we'll take a walk, take the dogs around the block and, and talk it out. And I usually know where I need to go by the time we get home. Uh, he also is terrific at doing the layout and the formatting and tracking the royalties and all of that piece of, of things. All of, the, um, all of the promotional graphics and things. We do hire cover artists, uh, but he works with all those pieces behind the scenes. The other piece I work in addition to the actual writing is the marketing piece, because that's what my MBA was in. That's what my corporate experience was in. And, you know, no lie, that does take a fair amount of time, probably an hour to two hours a day on top of the writing. Uh, but it's just the way the world works right now. And it if, if you're going to bring the books out, it makes no sense not to let people know about them. You have to do that yourself. And so, you know, that's kind of how we split Yeah, well, the that's day. great. And also during this time of uh, COVID, you're having to be more creative and you're doing something now because we used to be able to go to conventions or writing conferences and, you know, sit down with authors and share our work and share with readers. But now that's not as much possible. Have you created something with other like-minded people called Continual? Tell us what that is. Mm-hmm. Well, Continual is the online, ongoing, multi-genre convention that never ends. And we had, I'd been talking with this, about this with a few friends, John Hartness, Jim Nettles, uh, Jean Marie Ward, uh, Jeannie Adams, Nancy Northcott. We've been talking about this for a while and said, you know, we really would love to have a gathering space online for all of the genre fiction, especially epic fantasy, urban fantasy, there really hasn't been a, a central gathering point. And for purposes of things like book launches and reviews, there hasn't been uh, the kind of online infrastructure that, say, the romance genre has. And so wouldn't it be nice if, if, if somehow this got built? And then quarantine happened, 
you know, this, this all happened and it seemed like the perfect time to build a place for us to come together online. The benefit is, you know, we intend continual to run indefinitely. So it's not just a stopgap while we're dealing with the virus. It's something that we hope to build out and uh, make very robust and bring in more and more fans and professionals in a variety of ways. So you can hear panels with multiple authors, just like at a convention, author readings, author interviews. Uh, we're bringing in more live performances with filk music and musical performers and, and other kinds of things. We're planning to bring in some fun stuff for the weekend. We've done uh, watch parties for movies. So we are building a place that we hope will serve us for many years and broadening it beyond just epic and urban fantasy to include romance, paranormal romance, mystery, um, horror, all those genres that really haven't had a landing space. And one of the other really exciting things about this is that most of the people who attend conventions largely attend in their home region. So that may be the Northeast, the Southeast, out West, but it's too expensive and takes too much time to travel all over the country to go to conventions. So you tend to see a lot of the same people, both fans and professionals. With an online convention, we have the opportunity to bring in authors and professionals from all over the world and have fans interact from all over the world. I'm working on a track right now with British authors um, and bringing them into panels that we can talk about the books we love, which wouldn't be possible even at a big convention like DragonCon usually don't bring in people from outside the country. So we have a lot of potential here to create a gathering space for fans and professionals that never ends, never closes, never goes away. And that's really exciting. And that's that's been my quarantine project. Well, it sounds like you've added a little bit to your plate with this project, but uh, it's nice that it never ends because a lot of these books, uh, they take place at night and overnight and in the dark, so they can watch and participate anytime they want to. Um, hey, let's do this. Uh, a lot of authors who are getting started are trying to think, okay, should I go traditional publishing? Should I get an agent? Should I set up my own business? Should I do what you do. But if someone just wants to start writing and tell stories and maybe they're going to go the independent route, what are a couple of basic tips that you would give to them to make sure that, uh, you know, when they're done with writing something, they don't just, you know, look up and now they start thinking about marketing. Any, any basic thoughts you have about that? Well, there's no wrong way to write. You just need to decide for yourself what you want out of your writing. Some people just love to write and share their story and maybe get some feedback from people who read the same kind of thing. And that can be original fiction. That can be fan fiction. If you don't care about ever making money off it, that's perfectly okay. You're still a writer and you can still create a group of fans and friends and get the feedback you need and, and share those stories. And that's perfectly okay. If you want to make some money from your writing, you can pitch to traditional publishers or you can go indie. Traditional publishers, always a bit more of a gamble. You usually need to have an agent to pitch to most of the publishers. Uh, and of course, when you do work with a publisher, they take the lion's share of any money that comes in. Of course, they also produce the book and get it out into the world. Um, they don't handle nearly as much marketing as you'd like them to. So that still falls on your shoulders. But you can say that you've been published with XYZ Publisher and maybe your books will be in bookstores, maybe not, but they'll be out in the world. And that matters to people. That, that imprint of, wow, somebody else liked my book enough to buy it. Um, for some people, that's their, um, that to them makes them a success as a writer. For other people, they don't care, or that's just one of many considerations. If what you're really looking to do is quit your day job and eventually be able to make a living as a writer, first off, that 
almost never happens with your first book. And it's a long, uh, it is a long road to build a business just like it is if you built any other kind of business. It It isn't any difference because writing is somewhat artistic. If you went out and started a business selling skin cream, you wouldn't be a millionaire your first year either. So you have to approach it like a business. You have to learn how to do the different jobs that it takes to put a good book out and to have a nice cover that looks professional or professional formatting. You have to learn a lot of new software, a lot of new skills. But if you can do that and gradually build an audience and catch people's attention by telling a riveting story, it is definitely possible to make a living. Now, again, probably not going to happen your first year out of the gate. A lot of people keep a day job and build this slowly in the background. But it all depends on what you want to build toward as a writer. And there is no wrong path. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, one last writing life question. Uh, I ask this of uh, authors a lot, and that is, uh, if you could tell your younger writing self one thing uh, of value that you've learned over your many years of writing that it might have helped your younger writing self, what would it be? I, I think just knowing that it would happen eventually. It's a long slog. It took 20 years to bring out my first book. Now I write, you know, maybe a dozen books a year. That comes with practice. But I've been doing it for over a decade. Uh, it didn't start that way. So I think in some of those bleaker periods when I wondered if it would ever happen, just telling myself to hang in there because it gets better. Is it as much fun now as it was when you first started? I'd say it's even more mm. fun because there is a lot of satisfaction that comes with knowing a little more what you're doing. I mean, you know, I'm always learning. But when when those pages come that you go back and you read them go, dang, that was pretty good. <laughs> Um, that feels good. Yeah. I also am very blessed to have a wonderful crew of other authors who are so supportive. And, you know, we joke about being the North Carolina Writers Mafia, but it really is true. In better times, we caravan to conventions together. We do a lot of panels, a lot of programming together. Many of those folks have come in to be part of the operating uh, group behind Continual. So we have a staff meeting every week now. Uh, and of course, you know, it wouldn't be possible at all without my husband, Larry, who is, you know, so much of the presence behind the scenes and then also a very good writer in his own stead. So it really is a, you know, the whole takes a village to bring out a book. But yes, it's a lot of fun because I get to tell the stories that are close to my heart and then I get to connect with readers and other authors and share them. So yes, it's, it's abs I'm having a blast. That's great. So just, we got a little time left. We're going to just uh, hit quickly, uh, Spell, Salt, and Steel. You said you liked uh, uh, this uh, book to finish with because there's a little humor in it. Um, this is a mechanic uh, named Mark, will you pronounce it? Wojcik. 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 Mark Wojcik. And he's a monster hunter that deals with supernatural threats and paranormal conspiracies, uh, again, in the wilds of Pennsylvania. Uh, anything you want to say to set up this reading you're going to do? No, because Mark's going to introduce himself in the pages. So let's let let's go to him. Okay. Northwestern Pennsylvania, where the men are men and the sheep squatch are deeply respectful, except when they aren't. I slogged through a wooded area near Tamarack Lake, slapping at deer flies and gnats and cursing under my breath. I'd had a quiet Friday night in mind, binge watching a few movies, drinking some beer and hanging out with my pet Doberman, Demon. Then the call came, and so here I was, up to my balls and scrub grass, chasing a woolly cryptid through the woods. Unfortunately, nothing about that scenario was the tiniest bit unusual. The red filter on my flashlight had supposedly, a flashlight hat supposedly made the light harder for my quarry to spot, but I just thought it gave a cheap horror movie effect to the whole thing. I bent down and peered at some fibers caught in a pricker bush. They looked like strands of dirty white wool, which told me I was on the right track. Up ahead, I caught a glimpse of a pale hunched figure and I picked up my pace. I had a modified harpoon gun with a grappling hook tipped shaft attached to a heavy duty rope and a secret weapon about to be deployed as soon as I had a better visual on the creature. And there he was in all his sheepish glory. 
This particular sheep squatch stood about six feet tall on his hind legs, with a coat of matted wool. It had a head like a bighorn sheep, and a muzzle like a husky dog and a yeti had a mistaken night of passion and birthed the love child. Not to mention, the thing smelled like ass. My buddy, Officer Pat Carmody, had called me in because the critter had been gnawing on people's landscaping and he was afraid someone would call in the media and we'd have a monster all over TV, which would draw all the wrong kinds of attention. Things could get ugly. And they definitely could, especially if the sheep squatch was indeed a male, because those things are hung like a squirrel, proportionately, I mean. Not a pretty sight when it stands up naked on its hind feet, not to mention those big horns, and when they butt like a billy goat, someone's going flying. Sheep squatch also have a temper and a nasty overbite. I'd checked out the area earlier, trying to be prepared. Not that anything I ever planned went the way it was supposed to, but I figure it's the thought that counts. Hey, ugly, I shouted, and the sheep squatch stopped. I hefted the harpoon gun to my shoulder and shot. The grappling hook shaft sailed through the air and caught like a burr in the creature's thick woolly coat. The other end of the rope was attached to a water ski handle, and I grabbed hold and slung my harpoon gun over one shoulder. At the same time, I could hear the yapping of a border collie, which had been let loose from its kennel and crashed through the scrub toward us. The sheep squatch stood to its full height and let out a baleful bleat. It turned its beady eyes on me, then swiveled its head toward the collie and took off running. The whole idea behind the harpoon and grappling hook had been to steer the creature toward the cage that Pat, my other friend, Officer Louis Marino, had helped me set up earlier in the day. Instead, I found myself sheep squatch skiing through the slick grass, skidding and stumbling and trying to keep up. I've got him, I shouted, although it was a toss-up over who had whom. The border collie was on the job, nipping at the monster's heels, hedging it in so that it lumbered in the right direction. The sheep squatch tried to bolt, and I threw my weight in the opposite direction. At six foot two and about 190, I'm not a little guy, but sheepy was solid muscle and probably had at least 70 pounds on me. Get the shot, I yelled to Louie as I lost my footing and tumbled along, along like a tin can on a string behind a just-married car. Trank him! At best, I slowed the sheep squatch down a bit. Mostly, I probably just annoyed the fuck out of him as he tried to swat at the place where the hooks were lodged in his fur. Louie fired, but the dart hit the creature in the arm, not the ass. That just pissed Sheepy off, and he started to run. The border collie yipped and barked, trying to keep Sheepy headed toward the cage. I stubbornly held on to the grip, skidding on my dupa, and then managing to get on my feet, trying to make sure the creature didn't get away from us. Shoot him again, I yelled. It didn't take. Both Pat and Louie were local cops, but they weren't park rangers, and roofie and cryptids wasn't in their job description. I heard two shots, and Sheepy jerked when the darts hit. One was center mass in his chest, and the other stuck out of his big, hairy backside. Sheepy bellowed and swatted at the darts, managing to knock the one in front away, but he couldn't reach his butt. The dog nearly had him to the steel cage, filled with yummy treats like clover and slices of bread. Almost on the threshold of the cage, the creature stopped and glared at Louie, who was the closest, then took a roundhouse swing at him. Sheep squatch aren't the most graceful creatures, even when they haven't been pumped full of tranquilizers, but this one punched like a drunk. His fist went wide, but Louie stumbled, getting out of the way, and fell down, landing on the remote for his police cruiser. He hit it just right, setting off the strobe lights and sirens. Sheepy stiffened, bleated in alarm, and wobbled. I knew he was going down, and I didn't want to have to haul a couple hundred pounds of rank sheep squatch ass into the cage, so I plowed into him from behind. He fell forward into the cage and didn't move. The border collie ran up, wagging his tail, taking credit for the whole thing. Does that count as sheep tipping, Louis asked, as he got to his feet. So that's just another Friday night in the, in the life of Mark Wojcik. He um, started out as a mechanic, and, you know, up in my neck of the woods, everybody is a deer hunter. He went out on a deer hunt with his dad, uncle, brother, and cousin, and unfortunately, a Wendigo hunted them. Mark was the only one who survived, and he has been kind of doing penance for that, as well as wanting to make sure the same kind of thing doesn't happen to anybody else. Um, so that's that's his story, and he's sticking to it. <laughs> Did you have fun writing that scene? Oh, I did. You know, and, and that's one of the things with Mark. It is a spinoff of John Hartness's Bubba the Monster Hunter series, which is comedic horror. So, yes, there there are some creepy dark things that happen. But then you've got somebody who is sheep squatch skiing. All of the creatures, like I said before, really do come from local urban legend and mythology. I don't make these things up out of whole cloth. And a sheep squatch is indeed supposedly an indigenous Pennsylvania cryptid. 
All right. Well, you've given us a lot to think about and enough to be afraid of to, today, today <laughs> on this episode. But there's some heroes here that are going to save us from all these uh, difficult circumstances and the creatures that uh, go bump in the night. So, uh, uh, listeners, there's going to be information in the show notes about Gail, about her writing, links, uh, photos, book covers, all this kind of thing. Uh, I think I've even got a link to C- Continual, which is part of what she talked about with the online conference. And so, uh, Gail, thanks so much for being a part of Charlotte Reader's podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.